Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada by My Lights. This is episode 239, but uh, there may be more, maybe less, depending. Uh, we are here today, Andy and I, with a very, very special guest. We'd like to welcome to the program Mike McNair, a member of the uh, Provisional Central Committee of the Communist Party of Great Britain, a Marxist theorist, a commentator at The Weekly Worker, and the author of Revolutionary Strategy from 2008, a book we're going to be discussing a bunch today. Mike's work has been instrumental in the recent revival of uh, Marxist republicanism, influencing, at least in the United States, members of the DSA, especially the Marxist unity group. We thought it would be great to bring Mike on the show to discuss his theoretical and historical works and talk about the ways they might be applied today. So before I welcome Mike once more, I want to say thank you to Donald Parkinson, who put the two of us in touch. So thanks, Donald. Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. And you? Very well, thanks. Uh, I'm into my second month of unemployment, and it is wonderful. How about you, Andy? <laughs> oh, I'm doing great. I'm just writing my book, podcasting. Living the dream. <laughs> we um, are going to have a nice discussion about revolutionary strategy in the first part of the show, and then we'll go into a bonus section. Um, before that, if you're a patron of the Antifada, uh, by the time this episode comes out, there will be a text post in there with the description uh, and the site and the time of our big meetup that we're having in February. So February 24th, go check that out. And we're looking forward to seeing many, many, many New York-based and surrounding uh, area people very, very soon. And real quick, if you subscribed and you're, you want that book, if you subscribed at the annual $10 a month level, you got to send me your mailing address for that. I saw some people signed up. Some people sent the mailing address. Some people didn't. So just remember to send that to me on Patreon, and I will send it out to you at the end of the month. So without further ado, Mike, you're in the Communist Party of Great Britain. Before we uh, begin, what's the lineage of the CPGB, and what separates your party from other parties? Okay, we are, um, we historically, the CPGB comes from... Uh, a faction in the old Communist Party called the Leninist. Yeah. And um, uh, the Leninist was a faction which was created by um, uh, uh, <clears throat> Jack Conrad and Associates in the uh, early 1980s. Um, and it was uh, uh, basically influenced by uh, well, substantially influenced by the Communist Party of Turkey, Iskinin Sesi. Um, it was, uh, the comrades were operating as a clandestine faction in the old CP because the old CP, like all official communist parties, formally bans factions. I quote oh. marks around this because... Uh, we'll be talking about that later. Etc. <laughs> uh, et and uh, in 1991, uh, the uh, Euro-Communist majority of the old Communist Party wound the party up and uh, the uh, Leninist faction seized the name of the party in order to um, say, to assert, we deny that you have the right to liquidate the Communist Party. Uh, this is is complicated by the fact that uh, the... Uh, faction of the old party around the uh, Morningstar newspaper 
had uh, seized control of the newspaper in order to stop the Eurocommunists winding that up and had split and formed a separate organization called the... Uh, uh, oh dear, I can't remember what it was called now, but that's now called the Communist Party. They changed their name in the mid-90s to the Communist Party of Britain. Mm. So CPB is Communist Party of Britain is a whole lot larger than us, and they've got a daily paper, which is the Morning Star. Uh, we are a much smaller group, which is uh, has got a weekly paper uh, called the Weekly Worker. Uh, the uh, comrades uh, in the um, CPGB. PCC, the expression provisional central committee says something important about us that we don't claim. We say we are not the party. We are a campaign for the reforging of the Communist Party. But we are a campaign for the reforging of the Communist Party, which has uh, fought for unity of communists as communists, uh, going back to participation in a series of unity initiatives of the British left, starting with uh, Arthur Scargill's Socialist Labour Party, and then in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the Socialist Alliances, uh, which were initially set up as a front by the Socialist Party of uh, uh, the militant as was, and within the Scottish Socialist Party, which again came out of that milieu, and since then, uh, in Respect, which was the Socialist right. Workers' Party attempt with George Galloway to right, right. cash in on the uh, Stop, Stop the War Coalition uh, and uh, the anti-Iraq war movement and a variety of small uh, attempts to create unity, to left unity, which was on a substantially larger scale, and uh, most recently, we uh, threw ourselves into the Corbyn movement in the Labour Party, along with a large part of the uh, British left. So that's 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 the history. Um, my personal history is slightly different because mm. I was um, in the International Marxist Group, which was the British section of the Mandelite Fourth International from 1974 through to roughly 1993. And, uh, I dropped out of politics at that time and came back in around the anti-war movement in mm. the early 2000s and joined CPGB at that time. And in fact, in terms of uh, the membership of CPGB, uh, there's a fair number of people who are members of CPGB PCC who are uh, not from the Leninist background. Uh, Yasmin who, Mado, who writes for us regularly, comes from uh, the Iranian Fedayeen in origin, uh, mm. and so on. Uh, so you uh, have a background in uh, organized Trotskyism. Um, yeah. By the time 2008 comes around, uh, I presume that you've seen a lot and you're trying to get your head around the historic failures uh, of the communist movement and the workers' movement in general, 2008, of course, being... A rough time for uh, for communists. Uh, what made you write uh, revolutionary strategy? What were the debates happening at that time that made you delve into the two hundred year history of Marxist politics and create this work? Okay, this was uh, originally a series of weekly worker articles written in two thousand and six, and it was addressed to a de 
large debate on strategy, which was going on in the French Ligue Communiste Revolutionnaire, which is the uh, French section and the actual objective centre of the, was the French section, the objective centre of the uh, Mandalite International, uh, because the Ligue Communiste Revolutionnaire was uh, big in May 68 and People used to say in the 70s that the, the, the IMG, International Marxist Group, which I was a member of, was a miniature imitation of the French League and that the GIM, Gruppe Internationale Marxisten, which was the German section of the Mandalites, was a baby imitation of the IMG. Mm. Uh, but it was also the case that the that, that Mandalite faction of the International, the League, was by far the biggest part of it. And the League also had very substantial influence on uh, the British far left beyond the Mandalites, so that they were friends with the Socialist Workers' Party. So the debate about strategy, which the League got itself into in 2006, Alex Kalinikos, on behalf of the Socialist Workers' Party, uh, wrote uh, a couple of big interventions in it uh, in favour of the SWP's uh, strategical conception. And so I was started out with a general introduction to this debate and posed the question what I had not orig- I did not originally intend to write a whole book about this issue. I, I started with the debate and then the what is the chapter Marxism as political strategy, reform coalition or mass strike and the revolutionary strategy of the centre. And then having started, I just went on because uh, the point which I was trying to make in those uh, three chapters then immediately unavoidably posed the question of, okay, are you not just defending return to the politics of the Second International? Mm. And I'm not just defending return to the politics of the Second International. And you can see why. As it were, the rest of the book is about why I'm not just defending the politics of return to the Second International. I am defending the idea that we should reject both the politics of uh, of entry into coalition government, which is uh, it, it was rejected by the centre of the Second International, Milorandism, but which then has resurfaced as uh, the People's Front mm-hmm. and is the more or less orthodoxy of the left. It has been for a hundred years at this point, right? Over a hundred uh, No, I don't think for a hundred years. For um, 90 something, right? Okay, 1936. Yeah, 90 odd. Yeah, 90 odd years. Yeah. 90. God help us. I think uh, that's it. That's a, anyhow, and then, he, but equally to reject the interpretation, the far left, and I'm not quite sure when this interpretation came into existence. There's a tendency for people to blame it on Trotsky, but I don't think it is Trotsky. I think it's the new left which emerged after 1956 Mm. got the idea that the essence of Comintern politics was the politics of Luxembourg and uh, the Vaperiod tendency, Bogdanov, Lunakarsky, etc. in Russia and of the Delanists, so they did, wouldn't actually op- openly say that it was Delanist policy, but so the general strike strategy. So that that was my, anyhow, that was where it was coming from. And it, it, it was one of those things which sort of I've started and then I'll carry on. I have done, written a longish piece on imperialism, which we published as a series of four supplements, which is almost as long as revolutionary strategy. 
and um, you know, God, a six-parter, I think it was, on the constitutions, ancient and modern, uh, about how far uh, the antiquity of the U.S. Constitution is to explain its dysfunctionality, and uh, conversely, on the other hand, everybody imagines that the antiquity of the British Constitution, which is much older than the U.S. Constitution, is the reason for its functionality. Anyhow. Oh, interesting. Well, that's two more episodes <laughs> we can have you back for at some point. <laughs> well, I, I think a really interesting way that the book opens and, and frames the project of revolutionary strategy is this concept of rethinking and you actually spend some time considering what it means to rethink. So why, do, why was it a moment where rethinking was necessary? Where do you think the need to rethink began? And how does it extend or, or break with long-held Marxist principles? Okay, where I think the need to rethink began is 1991 began in 1991, in essence, because uh, the Trotskyists imagined that the fall of the... Well, most of the Trotskyists didn't imagine that the Soviet Union was going to fall. But that wasn't Trotsky's position. Trotsky had a position which was shared by, among uh, 1980s Trotskyists, by uh, the Spartacists, uh, Hillel Tiktin and the group round Critique, and uh, the Neo-Marciites who I worked with. It may have been the Posadistas, I don't know. I uh, don't know enough about the politics of the Posadistas. Um, That's why you need to read Andy's book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, uh, the, the idea that the, the regime was in danger of collapse, but those of us who thought the regime was in danger of collapse, that the Soviet and it, regime and its satellites were in danger of collapse, it didn't occur to us that there wouldn't be any movement of the working class to resist the collapse, the restoration of capitalism. And then you look back in the light of the collapse, and it's apparent that uh, the things which we thought of as political revolution, Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia 1968, Poland 1980, were foreshadowings of the form of the collapse under Gorbachevism. Mm. Uh, rather than being foreshadowings of political revolution. And the consequence of that is that uh, there's an objective need to rethink very substantially because both the ideas of official communism fail and equally the ideas of Trotskyism fail because the if political revolution, the overthrow of the bureaucracy by the working class was possible, then the 1930, Trotsky's interpretation of permanent revolution in 1930, that you would go forward and create uh, 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 isolated Soviet, isolated dictatorship of the proletariat and uh, spread from there was possible. But if it wasn't possible for the working class to overthrow the bureaucracy, then uh, it was fairly clear that that uh, line of analysis of uh, the Soviet regime and the approach of the left to it just fails. Yeah. And that's true just as much of uh, state cap versions as it is of um, orthotrot versions. In fact, more so, because the orthotrot versions, it's possible to explain why there's no ability to construct a uh, workers' revolutionary party. That would be uh, deformed, deformed uh, workers' state? Deformed workers' state, right. yeah. Because you could theorize that the deformed worker state is so bureaucratic that we can't construct a, uh, a revolutionary party until it opens, falls into open crisis. Uh, but uh, 
if it's a state capitalist institution, we've got, we know loads of state capitalist institutions. It's always been the case that the workers have been able to organize independent trade unions, clandestine political parties, etc., etc., etc. So that, uh, uh, the, the, in, in any case, the point is both the variants of Trotskyism uh, uh, fail. Okay, in the 90s, it was possible to believe, okay, Trotskyism has failed, but the social democracy, the project of the social democracy is nonetheless a possible project. But by the mid to late 90s, it was apparent that the social democracy was going down the tubes mm. just as much as uh, official communism and indeed uh, had become... Uh, <coughs> Uh, sort of uh, like um, official communism as well. Because You're, are you talking about uh, groups like the Benites you know, within the Labour Party in Great Britain? In the well, the Labour Party or? as such, as such, okay. the so French Socialist Party as such, uh, PASOK in Greece, uh, uh, the SPD in Germany. Yeah. So uh, the idea of these um, reviving perhaps into Marxist parties. Was a dead letter by by the night. Yeah, it was quite clear that that was that that, that 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 was that was never going to happen. Okay, it was also possible to think as another way of thinking about it was to think about it in sort of variant on Hart Negri, mm. uh, which is to say uh, that uh, the transition which is taking place after 1991 is analogous to the fall of the Roman Republic. Uh, what comes in place is. Uh, the U.S. as a genuine world empire. There are people who talk about the U.S. as the world cop enforcing Jean MacGamner, Martin Thomas and co. Um, have this idea that the U.S. is, is uh, the world cop which enforces the rules of liberalism. To, and in that sense that Kautsky's ultra-imperialism of 1914 was right, or not mm. was right, but was described in the 1990s. That idea was disproved by 2001-2003 because although we could imagine uh, the invasion of Afghanistan as being a world cop operation, uh, the uh, uh, attack on Iraq was plainly directed against France and Germany mm. and Russia. And uh, their commercial so, interests in the region. Uh, uh, and their commercial interests in the region. So that the United States was not becoming a world empire like the Augustan, the Empire of Augustus, which uh, subordinate, created stability for the world by subordinating the interests of the Roman aristocracy to the uh, security of the state. But on the contrary, uh, 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 an organization which creates disorder mm. in the interests of the particular interests of U.S. capitals uh, and particularly the... Um, uh, uh, the arms industry, but uh, the arms industry, the financial service sector, the whole nexus, etc. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, in that sense, um, it was then uh, there was a period around 1998 through 2003, which was characterised by the World Social Forums, the uh, and. Uh, the idea that the social forums movement was going to be this is alter new globalization, alter globalization, yeah. Right. Um, <coughs> Old enough to remember the end of that one, myself. yeah. Um, 
And again, this sort of characteristic that the World Social Forums turned out to be, in fact, uh, subject to veto control by the Brazilian Workers' Party and its apparat. The European Social Forum was subject to veto control by Refundazione Comunista and its apparat. When it came to London, it was subject to the crudest possible form of veto control by Ken Livingstone's London Mayor's Office hmm. being run by a little ex-trot group called Socialist Action, um, uh, a, a guy called Redmond O'Neill, uh, as exercising veto control over the whole process in the name of the London Mayor's Office, which was providing the funding. Uh, so that, yeah, these things... The idea re- that, that the, the World Social For- Forum might be able to break out of the cul-de-sac of the new left or the cul-de-sac of the popular front was proven. It yeah. proved that this veto power meant the staying power of these older groups. And then the um, uh, the left, I think, quite widely believed that uh, uh, crisis would deliver economic problems, economic crisis would deliver uh, mass mass radicalization for the benefit of the left. Now, it is certainly the case that economic crisis and so on, of course, I was writing this before 2008. What I was writing was, you know, capitalism is in trouble. It's visible that capitalism is in trouble. But who's benefiting from capitalism being in trouble? It's uh, people like Modi in India, uh, the uh, right wing of the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan, uh, the uh, etc. etc. Yeah. etc. And that's, um, I, I must admit that 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 that's become very much more strongly clear in uh, uh, the 2020s. Absolutely, with the uh, uh, right populist nationalism coming home to roost in the US and the UK, yeah. uh, in the capitalist core and the periphery as well. Yeah. Yeah. What I've triggered writing this by the debate in the league. It seemed to be that it was possible to insert, potentially insert ideas into the discussion which was created by the debate in the league. Having said that, it took quite some time before people started reading. Uh, any significant number of people started reading the book. Well, now it's been more than 15 years, and I think that's long enough for it to be considered a classic. Uh, You go through um, various concrete historical events, going back to the 1848 revolutions, the Paris Commune, October Revolution, the long 1970s, and of course something that, as you just described, looms large, which is the collapse of the USSR. All of these concrete events that lead... um, to a cul-de-sac, to a particular trajectory for the workers' movement and a particular defeat. Um, you chose to, to go through the past. You chose to do a, um, let's shall we say, a, uh, a summation, right, of the past. How was it that you ended up in a position where you, and this is anathema, I think, to so many people, not just Leninists, but especially Leninists, uh, you try to revindicate some of the policies of the Marxist center in the Second International, especially uh, Karl Kautsky. How did uh, your historical analysis lead you to reevaluate the Kautskyan tradition and others? Okay, I did say in the book that we I, we label the center with Kautsky, 
And in some respects, I regret labelling the centre with Kautsky because it's fairly clear that the strategic line of the centre, uh, which I'm trying to defend, was invented by August Babel. Possibly Karl-Liebknecht, but it's basically Babel uh, is the guy. And Kautsky is Babel's intellectual hitman in the same way that, OK, this is an oddball thing from the British left. But uh, If I could clarify quickly, uh, you're fatalistic in the book about their within the workers' movement, there being a Marxist right, a Marxist center, and a Marxist left. It seems like these have reproduced themselves through the course of history. So what you're saying is you identified Kowski as the center, should be maybe Babel, but this broader tradition of a patient social democratic party that... Okay, so the basic point which underlies this is the Marx-Bakunin debate in the early 18th, Marx, Marx and Engels the one side and Bakunin on the other side. And um, uh, the essence of the point is one which Marx and Engels inherited from Chartism. And the idea is that the first thing which the working class has to do is get political power. And getting political power is mainly about overthrowing the constitutional law. Uh, and uh, Bakunin's counterline to that is we have to move immediately to the abolition of the state. Mm. and to the socialization of production and that we can move immediately to the abolition of the state and the socialization of production through the general strike. So the debate is, uh, should the working class as a movement intervene in capitalist high politics, intervene in capitalist high politics by organizing political parties, by standing for election uh, to congresses slash parliaments slash local government, etc., etc. Should the working class produce uh, permanent newspapers? Okay, that's not, you might think that that's separate issue from the parties and elections issue, but the reality is that uh, without permanent parties, the working class can't produce uh, permanent newspapers um, because uh, the uh, the capitalist class Essentially, advertising is not uh, economically productive for the uh, firms which advertise. It's a subsidy to the capitalist press. Um, Okay, not advertising. You can't say no advertising would be economically productive, but advertising on the scale in which it's applied to the media is, is... Mass media is actually just a form of subsidy to the mass media. And then that has the collective, the consequence in turn that the uh, subsidized quality of the mass media means that um, anybody who hasn't got the backing of the mass media has to take uh, bribes on a large scale from big capital in order to be able to fund counter advertising. Mm. Okay, uh, but then mm. anyhow, my point being simply the uh, this the 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 Babel uh, Babel uh, Liebknecht strategy of patience um, is uh, actually descended from this Marx and Engels conception uh, as against which is the Chartist conception as against the um, uh, general strike advocates um, that uh, you have to do uh, what you have to do is you have to create political voice the workers movement has to create a political voice for itself Um, and uh, the second step of this however is uh, that uh, in the if we look at Bolshevism where we get where we 
where C where CPGB PCC got this idea from, because it's not unique to me, uh, is uh, reading Lenin. That if you read, mm. if you actually read Lenin's collected works before 1970, brought uh, down to and including 1917, yeah, what you get out of that is precisely a party of the Marxist centre, which refuses, on the one hand, coalition, and on the other hand, mm-hmm. uh, entering into coalition with the capitalists, which is uh, 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 the Menshevik. Uh, the Menshevik uh, line is we have to subordinate what we can propose to what the capitalists are prepared to agree to because it's essential to have the capitalists on board, which is essentially the same thing as Mitterrand and the People's Front and so on. Um, yes. Uh, but uh, Bolshevism is is about a party conception which is that which is within that framework and it's not within the framework of Luxembourg's The Mass Strike um, or um, uh, uh, the the various other left, Panica, Gorta, blah, blah, blah. Or, or the subsequent Leninist parties, right? Because you go through in the book how this, this center position kind of... Um, launders itself through a lot of um, the 20th century uh, while at the same time being anathema to official communism at that moment. A yes, it is. Uh, situation. It, it, it's um, particularly after it, 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 1936 is, fun, fun, is, is foundational because although um, the, the, well, the step one, which is the ban on factions, and it's perfectly just un- understandable why they did the ban on factions, because you've got on the one hand uh, the um, uh, right wing in uh, the USPD in Germany, the right wing in uh, the Italian Socialist Party, uh, asserting their factional rights as a justification for backing the capitalist class, uh, state loyalists. Mm-hmm. The nation state. And the nation state. Um, and uh, at the same time, in Russia, in the Civil War, you've got the Stalingrad affair and persistent problems of localism in, uh, as affecting military discipline. Uh, so that it, during the Civil War, they ban the localities. That's the first step before the ban on factions is to ban the local branches from uh, publishing their own press. Yeah. Uh, because they've got this problem of how the hell are we, we've got to fight and win this civil war. How are we going to fight and win this civil war? I must admit, I'm not convinced. I think that why that's the case is because of the social basis in the peasantry, the relative, the my, minority character mm. of the working class and uh, uh, the localism of the peasantry uh, finds expression in the uh, various oppositional groupings within the Red Army during the war. But in any case, they do, they ban, step one is they ban factions, but they don't actually implement it. And then step two is nineteen twenty, late 1927 through early 1929, we get a double police coup uh, that Stalin uses the police to uh, expel uh, the left, the leaders of the left from the party, and then, having expelled the leaders from the left, he steals their political clothes 
and uses the police to expel the leaders of the right, Bukharin, Rykov and Tomsky. Um, uh-huh. And uh, the upshot of that is that the, uh, the, 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 quote, democratic centralism becomes just a police regime. Um, but that, so that's, but 1936 is the moment at which that is also associated with a clear break with, um, the center of the second international on the question of coalitions and on the question of, uh, uh, the bourgeois democracy. Yeah. There's an interesting thread running through the book, uh, that, goes back to Bakunin and the influence of Bakunin, the post-Bakuninists on the trajectory of the Bolsheviks and then later on in terms of the anti-globalization movement. Um, and it's, it's kind of a theory that I haven't really heard before because I think it's so often thought that there is a break between Marx and Bakunin and then Bakunin influences the anarchists and the Marxists go their own way. Uh, can you m- maybe flesh out what what that influence was and how it played out? Well, it's necessary to be clear that um, uh, although uh, Marx was able to muster an episodic majority in 1871 to force through in the first international voting uh, uh, in participation in bourgeois elections and the expulsion of the Bakuninists as an entry operation, uh, uh, what happened afterwards was that the first international the Marx wing of the First International collapsed and the Bakunin wing of the First International succeeded in keeping going for five or six years after the collapse of the Marx wing of the First International. That's reflected. They moved the centre to New York. It's commonly thought... The New York yeah, Club of Commerce. It's commonly right. thought to be the case that moving the um, uh, uh, executive of the IWMA to New York was just a way of killing it. I don't think they expected to kill it. I think they thought that the workers' movement in America was on the up and uh, that it would be a more Mm. solid, given that the Brits had uh, the post-war, the the original uh, First International is a block of the um, French Proudhon, uh, Proudhonists and the... uh, British trade union movement and the British trade the French the French were liquidated by the French state as part of the repression after the commune and the uh, mm. British uh, took panic after the repression of the commune and then were also given goodies in the form of the reform act of 1867 and the uh, legalization of trade unions in 1871 um, and um so the idea was essentially that the that the, there was going to be more of a movement in the states than here um but in fact that didn't work out okay uh then the consequence is that the bakuninists are never go they don't go away it's a permanent shadow as it were um uh it's just that we don't um we rebrand it, they rebrand themselves as anarcho syndicalists rather than anarchists. Yeah, uh, uh, they become heavily involved in anti political trade unionism. Yeah, um, and in that context, the uh, you get uh, guys who are uh, radical leftists 
uh, in the socialist parties who look towards reunify, reunification with the anarchists um, uh, uh, and the general strike strategy, the some conception of the general strike strategy. And that's uh, certainly the case. A example, um, oh dear, um, sorry, the name is escaping me at the moment, but... Um, but where you're discussing the long this sort of sub uh, Bakuninist tendency, which then becomes the Marxist it left, influences. or influences, yeah, the it influences. Left the... So, um, uh, uh, dear me, uh, there's a South German uh, who there's a bunch of people basically who are general strike advocates in the SPD in the 1880s. Um, Von Volmar, Eugen von Volmar. And then in his El Dorado speeches in 1891, he becomes the original advocate of revisionism and coalition policy towards the uh, uh, coalition with the liberals. Um, so Volmar mm. is an ultra left who leaps to the right. We've seen that happen uh, repeat. Repeatedly, yeah. One of our English example, Paul Mason. Um, oh, yeah. Big supporter this of this point in time. This yeah, he uh, started out with a trot group called Workers' Power, which was a very dogmatic, standard dogmatic trot Workers' Power League for the Fifth International, because they think that the uh, uh, Fourth International betrayed Trotskyism in Bolivia in 1952. Um, and and Fifth International has to be constructed. Anyhow, uh, and then he was out of workers' power. He was a journo. He wrote a book called Why It's Kicking Off, or Kicking Off Everywhere, which was uh, gung-ho for uh, Occupy and the street movements and uh, stuff like that. And then uh, suddenly, when the Corbyn movement started in the Labour Party, he was a critic of Corbyn from the right and um, uh, became an advocate of British rearmament within NATO. Uh, so a classic uh, uh, right wing of not, the Marxist I think he's, he's not say? come from the Marxist movement, but he's become just a right winger. Yeah. But the but the the right wing of the the Marxist movement, as you talk about it historically, but also theoretically, uh, is a group that's associated with, of course, the butchery yeah. of uh, the German Revolution uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. But all but its social basis is uh, the trade union leadership, the bureaucracy we could call them. Its social basis is uh, opportunists. People who see the party as a way to careerists. I think yes. If we if we say careerists, it works yeah. better because opportunists um, sort of has got a long history of being used just to mean right wingers or alternatively people who want to seize opportunity. Well, people who are in the party but want to seize opportunities. Yeah. But but we all have we all have our like um, various Marxist yeah. tendency jargons. So to call somebody an opportunist means something very important if you're a Leninist or a Trotskyist. But you mean it in, the, in terms of careers. We, I want to I want to kind of ground my us a point little is bit here that, because my, my point your, is simply that the the yeah. the um, uh, it, actually there's another guy who's the same 
thing in different way. Paul Bruce in B-R-O-U-S-S-E in France uh, was a Bakuninist, uh, but by the late 1870s, he was a leader of the possibilist tendency uh, in uh, the um, uh, uh, French workers' movement who denounced uh, what he called, and Marx also called, the minimum program on the grounds that it tended to separate mm. the the party from the class because it uh, it was politics rather than bread and butter. Uh, so he, he, this this phenomenon of so people the, want to be radicals by direct actionism who become right wingers it's historically present from a very early date and has continued in modern right. times. And so where you situate the great disaster of the early twentieth century, which is of course uh, the vote by the SPD for war credits uh, leading into the First World War. Uh, where you situate that is in the contradiction between the right, which is looking for uh, a coalition with the capitalist parties, the center, which is caught between um, uh, social patriots, uh, uh, defending their own particular party gains that they had made over many decades building the party against uh, Russian absolutism, right, as this war breaks out. And then, of course, uh, the left-wing uh, as well, which is completely disoriented and attempts to try to reconfigure, re reconstitute itself in the Zimmerwald left. And Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution arise in 1917, and it does a lot of things, but one of the things that it does is create an irrevocable split between uh, the left and the center. And what you argue, among the many things that you argue in your book, is that uh, a coalition, a, a patient uh, party, built on working-class independence uh, must include the Marxist center and the Marxist left. There must be unity within these two groups to the exclusion of the right, that the right is social patriotic, that it's nationalist, and that it ultimately will seek to make a popular front with capitalist parties and to undermine it's it, It's, it's, that, a, it's not really adequate? quite right uh, for two reasons, one of which is... Okay, um, tell me... What happened in 1914, uh, understanding 1914 is difficult to understand without accepting British war guilt for 1914, in the sense that what Britain did to Germany is what the United States is today doing to China, which is pursuing a policy of aggressive encirclement, mm. uh, which is designed to prevent, was designed to prevent Germany developing as a potential peer rival. Okay. Mm. And in that context, it's not the guys who went for the pro-German line were not mad. Yeah, they weren't, uh, it, it wasn't pure. There's a real element of it, which is that uh, Bethmann Holweg, uh, when war was coming, went and had a meeting with the German trade union leadership and said to the German trade union leadership, uh, get the party to back us in the war and run the class peace uh, policy and we will legalize trade unions and uh, uh, fully legalize trade unions and so on because they weren't fully legal uh, after the war. You've also got a chunk of the left and really quite an important chunk of the left, Parvus, who was a co-thinker of Trotsky in writing The Permanent Revolution. Uh, his co-thinkers, Conrad Hainish, Kuno, they, Parvus, it's clearest, he, he became, he went to Turkey and worked with the Turkish nationalists in Constantinople. And uh, when 1914 came, he says, Turkey is your chance, Turkey, the war is your chance, Turkey, to get out from under the British heel. 
because, of course, the Turkish mm. state budget was like, like the IMF operations. The Turkish state budget was directly controlled by Britain and France as the creditor powers. Pavas says if Britain and France win the war, he writes a couple of pamphlets called If Britain and France Win the War and If Germany Wins the War, he says if Britain and France win the war, uh, the Ottoman Empire will be cut up and the uh, regime of uh, capitulations of, uh, will remain and so on. But if uh, Germany wins the war, uh, we will make a better de- Germany will make a better deal with you. Yeah, so he becomes, he decides on his own in Constantinople to adopt the defensist line, and he constructs a faction of the mm. German left uh, which adopts the defensist line round the journal Die Glocke. Um, so it's not just mm. the question of the, the, the right and the left is disoriented and collapses and goes into Zimmerwald. I think it's also the case that similar nationalism, Mussolini was a leader of the uh, Italian left in the Italian Socialist Party. Yeah. Uh, so that people who become socialist nationalists, that's not just in Germany, but also it's not just in the right, it's also in the left, it's not just in Germany, but also in the... Uh, okay, that's step one. Step two, yes, I agree that the social base of the right is basically the trade union bureaucracy, but trade union bureaucracy and the official elected representatives, because the elected representatives extraordinarily quickly become uh, socialised into the culture of the the parliament slash the congress and so on and so forth. Point is not that by splitting irrevocably from the old right, we solve the problem because the phenomenon of uh, right-wingism grows up within the movement in, in and of itself. The problem with splitting with the right is that we need to, uh, in order to obtain freedom of action, because the uh, the right it, it's the right which expels the USPD from the SPD the right which makes the split in uh, 1916 it's uh, the right which splits in Britain when they lose the majority Hindman and Wells walk out and form the National Socialist Party okay National mm. Socialist Party it means something different after Nazism but uh, uh, okay. uh, this wasn't the Mosley uh, Party it, but it but um, it is what it says on the label it's a, yeah. Nationalist uh, attempt. Right. So, and Lenin makes the point. Actually, Lenin and Zinoviev make the point in uh, 1915. They, they say the the right constantly comes up with ultimatums. Shut up! Uh, it's because the right demands that the left shut up that we can't actually maintain broad unity of the whole movement across the right and the left. It's paradox because it's quite often the case that the right, the form of the demand, the right that the left shut up is you're being rude. You're not being comradely, you know, against Luxembourg. You're offending. You're offending yeah. our sponsors somewhere, our sponsors in Parliament or our sponsor uh, in. Um, well, you know, against Luxembourg pamphlet that he wrote against Luxembourg in 1915. We can have legitimate discussions about whether it was a correct decision in August 1914, but Luxembourg so his rights abusively. And calls us uh, oh. traitors. Uh, things like God forbid such such language be used when you're talking about a world historic event like the beginning of the imperial interimperial one. slaughter yeah. of World so it's, War One. Um, we're uh, we're winding into the end of the uh, of the main episode now, and I want people, if you're patrons, of course, to stick around, and I want people who aren't 
uh, to sign up at antifa.patreon.com uh, slash the Antifada. Because in the second half of this, I think we're going to flesh out um, the sort of positive program which you present. Uh, I think it, there's a draft program, right? The CPGB draft program. And talk importantly, too, about um, republicanism, uh, democratic republicanism, as you discuss in the book, something that I think has really animated uh, the Marxist unity group, among others, and allows us a different way of understanding not just the party, not just the working class movement, but what it's fighting for, the historical background of what the republic might mean for us, but especially what it meant for Marx and Engels and the thinkers of the Social Democratic Party of Germany and even Lenin, right? So that's, I think, we're going we're gonna to really like dig down into it and we're going to talk practically. And I hope to see everybody on the other side. Uh, Mike, thanks. We'll take a quick break and we'll see you there. Thanks. So in, in terms of the book's sort of ultimate proposal, yeah, I, I'm intrigued by a couple concepts of it. One of them is extreme democracy as sort of the basis of the uh, a kind of democratic dictatorship of the proletariat. I mean, maybe you could flesh out a little bit like what that means. Like what is the, the vision of what the, a unified communist movement could do and what its vision is uh, of transitioning towards communism? Okay, I think that the second of those comes first. Yeah, the vision of transitioning towards communism, as I said, is in in the first part is derived from uh, Marx. Hello, folks. Sean from the Antifada here, announcing a special promotion this year in 2024. Sign up for the Antifada at an annual level of ten dollars and receive a free copy of the Vortex Group's book on the George Floyd Uprising. Andy will send that right to your door. For on the $5 level for an annual subscription, we'll send you something really nice like a postcard or something like that. We're trying to build the show in this new year, and we appreciate your support as always. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the other side. 